Hey, uh, as our campuses join us at our multi-sites, we're going to go to our time in the Word. We, we do want to invite you back tonight, all of us, at uh, 5 here in the, in the Shea Worship Center, if you uh, dig what New Hope, or this Hope just did, and they're, they're great, and they have a great mix of music, and it will be a really worshipful time, so we'd love to have you guys come back for that. Uh, for 2,000 years, Christians have worshipped this way when they've gathered. They've uh, sung to God, they've been sung to about God, they've fellowship with each other, they've given generously of resources, and then all of that is in preparation for our time in the Word. For 2,000 years, Christians have opened up this book and uh, talked about the life of Jesus and what our life is about today and uh, all the other teachings in this book. And so we're continuing that tradition this morning. Is that not cool? Uh, let's bow and pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the worship time that we've had here and at Cactus, Mountain Valley, and at the venue and chapel. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the congregations that you've blessed us with here at Scottsdale Bible. And now, Lord, for our unified time in your word. So I pray that as we open up to a, a very powerful story from the uh, ministry of Jesus, that, God, you would speak to each one of our hearts individually and then also collectively us as a body of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. So one of the things that I've uh, loved about the life of Jesus, and I think many of you have noticed this and loved this as well, is that he was never one to shy away from difficult and even inflammatory subjects, right? I mean, Jesus talked, if you read the Gospels, about things like business ethics, taxes, money, marriage, divorce, greed, materialism, sex, the poor, I mean, he even entered into a political issue or two in his day, and just about every subject that one would engender, that would engender a spirited discussion, Jesus didn't mind uh, entering into. And so as we continue in our look at John chapters 7 through 11, and specifically noting 10 traits that befit a follower of Jesus, it should not surprise us today that the story we get to is once again about Jesus wading into the deep end on some difficult issues in life. And i got to tell you from a personal standpoint, gang, that the story that we're going to look at today is hands down one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It's very down-to-earth, it's very true-to-life, it's hard-hitting and raw, and quite frankly, it's about my favorite subject in the Bible, that of grace. And so I think you're going to like it. Now, before I read you the story and share with you the outline, I want to make one quick comment, because some of you have opened your Bibles already and noted that the story we're going to look at that's contained in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, is in brackets in the Bible. And you might be thinking, what's that about? Well, it, it, it's for a much longer discussion, but to suffice it to say this, that when the Bible was being put together, and specifically the New Testament, shortly after Jesus' ascension into heaven, they had to decide, uh, the people who put the Bible together, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which stories, which accounts would go uh, in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were writing them. And then, as we got handed down the various copies of the Gospels, and there's 5,000 different Greek copies just from the first few centuries of the New Testament. It's the most copied book on planet Earth. We had to put all those together and figure out now which ones were actually authentic to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason that this story is in brackets is because this story appears in some of them, but not others. 
And it doesn't appear in some of the earlier ones, so scholars tend to doubt whether this story is what we call canonical, meaning it was originally part of John's Gospel. Uh, but they have enough evidence that this story is historical, meaning it really happened, this is not a myth, and, and that it is true to the life of Jesus, that it's included in our Bibles in brackets, which is a nice way of saying that we want it there, but we don't know if it was exactly a part of the original or not. Does that make sense? Did I bore you enough with that? But, but at least now you know why it's in brackets there. I think that this story is authentic to the life of Jesus. It's certainly historical. St. Augustine, in a fascinating way, in the 5th century, actually thought that the reason that the earlier gospel uh, collators didn't put this in is because it was such a hard-hitting story of grace involving such a difficult subject, this idea of adultery, that they just said, we're not even going to risk putting that in there. That, that was Augustine's thought. Uh, so let's understand this story before us. And, and to do so, I've broken it down on your outline into three bite-sized chunks. It will help you see the flow of the narrative here, what I'm going to call the request in verses 1 through 6a, and then the response in verses 6b through 9, and then the release in verses 10 through 11. The request, the response, and the release. And so let's begin by noting the request it's really a snarky demand that comes to Jesus from the religious elite of his day as the story begins like this in John's Gospel. It says, everyone went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the next morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. And so for those of you who haven't heard this story before, now you see why this is such a, a, a dramatic story. Jesus is still teaching in the temple area here, as he had been all throughout chapter 7, uh, but this time his teaching is interrupted by the Jewish religious elite, and they do something very thick with tension. They bring a woman who had been caught in adultery, and the Jewish leaders even make it clear that they caught her in the very act and they ask Jesus what he thinks they should do with her. And they point out to help him along that the Old Testament says that this woman should be stoned. And this is the dilemma that they put in front of Jesus. Now, what you need to know is on that technical point that she should be killed, they were right. The Old Testament law, specifically the civil law for the nation Israel, says this in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, it repeats it. It says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge evil from the nation Israel. So there you have it. And the only technical thing that the religious leaders were wrong about as they brought this to Jesus was how this woman should die. Did you pick up on that? It says nothing about stoning her. It just says that she should be put to death. 
So their demand to stone her, uh, well, they could have done it other ways. In fact, it's fascinating, in the, in the Mishnah, which was an oral tradition at the time of Jesus, uh, we know that in Jesus' day, the way that they put adulterers to death was through strangulation, which I find ironic because when I got married to Kim, she said to me at one point that if you ever have an affair on me, see where I'm going with this? She said, the church will be the least of your worries. I will choke you to death. And I don't think she'd ever read the Mishnah, but, but she was first century Jew all the way. And so that was the only thing that they, were not, that they were not really technically correct about, but everything else they were. And here's the deal, guys. Here's what you got to dial into. Jesus is faced with a very real dilemma on multiple levels. I mean, first level is that if he ignores the Old Testament penal sanction, this shows that he doesn't agree with God's law. But if he agrees with it and puts this woman to death, he's got major troubles with the Roman authorities because they didn't have this law. And so for the Roman authorities, they would just snatch him up and end of his ministry. But even more to the point, as I kind of hinted to already, this Old Testament civil law of Israel's was about to be fulfilled by Jesus. He was going to come along and institute what we call the church age, the, the age of grace. And the nation Israel would not be the, the operative place of God's grace and action, or the only place. And, and so Jesus was just about ready to do that, and that would make this issue of the penal sanction of adultery kind of moot, but he hadn't done that yet. That would only come through his death and resurrection and ascension and the setting up of the church. So it's a bit early to spring that one on everybody, and Jesus knows this. And though there's other subtleties going on in this event, like where's the man? I mean, he should be held accountable too, right? And, and who are these witnesses that actually caught them in the very act, and what's that about? Nevertheless, the request, the test, still stands. And Jesus knows it. This woman committed adultery. The law says stone her. What then do you say, Jesus? And guys, i got to tell you, it's at this point that the absolute brilliance of Jesus shines through. I mean, even if you're not a believer in him, even if you just look at the Gospels from a sociological standpoint, I got to tell you, it's masterful what he does here. Look at the response of Jesus in verses 6b through 9. It says, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the courts. Now folks, you've you got to appreciate the profundity of what Jesus does here. As I said, it's masterful. Because when you look close here, he, he, he's not going to argue with them that the law is wrong. And he's not going to say that they don't have a point. And yet, conversely, he's also not going to side with them and say, well, gee, should we stone her or strangle her? He's not going to go down that road. No, without taking away one inch of the intent of the law, he simply says in so many words, okay, let's do it. She has sinned and God's law is correct, but let's do it this way. Whoever has never committed any kind of sin that God would also abhor and want to kill you for, 
Let that person be the one to pick up a stone and send this dear woman into the afterlife. That's essentially what Jesus says. He who is without sin, that person should be the first one to apply God's law here. And it's fascinating, when he uses that little phrase, without sin, that, that phrase in the original Greek is pregnant with meaning uh, because it's a combination of two different Greek words. The Greek word hamartia, that means sin, and the Greek word ana, watch this, that means the opposite of. So, so it's, the, it's the Greek word anamartetas, hamartia and ana put together. And, and get this, it's the only occurrence of this word in all of the New Testament. Which implies, you got to love this, that God hardly ever even thinks of the idea that you and I are without sin. It never even enters into his equation for things. This is the only time this phrase is used. And it's obviously used here hypothetically with Jesus saying, let he who is without sin, not, not going to happen, but if it did, let that person cast the first stone. That's what Jesus says. And i got to tell you, the religious leaders did not see this one coming. I mean, the irony is thick. These are the lawyers of Jesus' day. These are the experts in the law. And they're the ones who are supposed to anticipate every response that he would have to this trap. That's what lawyers do. And they didn't see it coming. And it says that they were all stunned into silence. And don't you love this? Beginning with the older ones. Why do you think that was, Hank? It's because as you get older, you get a little bit smarter and a little bit more humble about your issues, and you know what you're really made of, and the older ones are going, you know, he's got a point. You know, none of us are without sin, and so if that's the ground rules, then we better get out of here. And as the younger ones saw the older ones do that, man, they were, they were hightailing it out of there with them. So in Jesus' response to their request, he doesn't condone, don't miss this, guys, he doesn't condone what this woman has done. I mean, adultery is going to transcend Israel's civil law with its penal sanctions. Adultery will also be found in the moral law, the Ten Commandments. So it's clearly a sin. But knowing that, God, that Jesus has a much greater thing to do with this woman than simply apply the penal sanction of the law, he gets them to back off by pointing to their own sin. And this now paves the way for the third movement of this story, really the height of the whole thing, what we're going to call the release, look at verses 10 through 11, how the story ends. It says, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, then I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Whoa. Guys, there's, there's a lot going on here in this closing section. Uh, but probably the most important thing you need to know, because this is all part of the narrative and the irony that's going on here, is that Jesus really was and is the only one who could rightfully judge this woman. Do you all understand that? I mean, Jesus has already dropped the bomb in the Gospel of John that he is God come to earth. In fact, John makes that clear in the very first verse, in the very first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so Jesus, by John chapter 5, is saying things like this, and I quote, he says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus already made it clear, he's the judge of his creation. He's the judge of all humanity, not us. 
And so when he says to this woman, well, I don't condemn you either, man, this carries all the weight in the world. It's God saying to this woman, they're condemning you. Feel the irony in this, guys. They're the ones who had no right to judge you, and they're judging you and condemning you. And over here, I'm the one that does have the right to judge you, and I will not condemn you. I will forgive you and release you from your sin. I, Jesus, the maker of your very soul. And it's interesting, some argue that this forgiveness that Jesus extends to her is based on her calling him Lord. Because when she says, well, no one Lord, that word Lord, in many instances in the New Testament, is a sign of belief and a sign of trust, a sign of submission, and that this could be a veiled way of this woman placing her trust in Christ. It is what one expert commentator calls an almost imperceptible repentance going on with this woman and i think there might be some merit to that i mean jesus forgives us based upon us asking for it based upon us trusting in him the bible makes that really clear but it's not completely seen in this story here but when she does say to him lord it very well could be the beginnings if not even more of faith and trust in him And then to show, once again, that he's not simply turning a blind eye to sin here, he ends the conversation with her, did you catch it, by saying, now go and sin no more. And the scene scene comes to a close. I'm telling you, gang, this is one of the most powerful stories of grace, one of the most powerful pictures of grace that you're ever going to get in all of the New Testament. I mean, Jesus is blowing the religious leaders out of the water. The crowds are there to watch this. He completely releases this woman from her sin and her shame, releasing her to now live a life of submission and following of God, as he says, sin no more. I mean, it is a full-blown picture of grace and how grace can and should work as we take Jesus up on his offer of faith and trust in him. And so the question I want us to wrestle with in our time remaining here before our Elder Fund offering is simply this. What does this story then actually teach you and I as followers of Jesus, or maybe even here today as a seeker, uh, in the 21st century today? I mean, mean, what transfers over? Outside of the fact that if maybe you've had an adulterous affair, this might be meaningful to you. I had a gal come up to me last night, a very young gal, said I've been married just a few years, and a few years ago I had an affair. And my husband and I survived it, and we're now having our second child. But she said, I was weeping during the entire sermon because it just brought it all up again, including God's amazing forgiveness and grace of me. So maybe that's the experience you have when you read a story like this. But even for those of us who might not relate on that level, what does this story teach us about our lives today? And I want to leave you with two thoughts, I think two very relevant thoughts that you and I must chew on as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in light of the teachings of this story here. And here's the first one, and that is that we need to own and wrestle with the fact that humanity loves to categorize rank and judge sin. Because this is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes show us, that humanity, and by the way, I'm lumping all of us together there. That means you, that means me, that means your neighbor, your friends, ASU, Fox News. We all love to categorize, rank, and judge sin. 
And again, it's inarguable. I mean, here's what we do. We, we look at all the ways that people mess up in this world. Have you pick, picked up on that one yet? So you read the newspaper, you watch the news, you look at sitcoms, you read books, you, you interact with your neighbors and people at work, and you're constantly having your antennas up, because it's hard to miss, uh, on the ways that people mess up, and even you. And then what you do is intuitively, you then sort of rank which are worse mess-ups than the others, Right? I mean, we all do that. I mean, ISIS is obviously, hopefully, a lot worse than the Democrats here in America, right? I mean, the way some of you talk, I, I don't think you believe that, but you should. I, I mean, it, it, or the Republicans, to be fair. I mean, you know, it's all a mess right now. And, and yet we'd all agree that ISIS is probably worse, right? Give me a head nod. I hope you think that. If not, you're really crazy. But most of us do, do make that discernment. But then what we do is that we then, I watch this, is that we then make value judgments based on how people mess up and which is worse than others. And then we attach those value judgments to individuals around us. And before you know it, we are in full-blown scribe and Pharisee mode saying, this is adultery. It's worse than anything else. This is the worst case you're going to get, Jesus. What are you going to do with this one? And we're thinking like scribes and thinking like Pharisees, all because we love to categorize rank and judge sin. And, and I want us to wrestle with this, because some of you are saying, well, Jamie, it's, it's not all bad that we do this, and, and I'm going to give you that. But here's what we need to wrestle with. God tends to see things in even your life a bit differently. See, when you read the Bible, it, what you pick up on is the fact that God tends to see his creation as all a mess, <laughs> even as equally a mess. I mean, the Bible says that, that all of us are fallen, all of us have sin, all of us are a mess, and then he declares all of us guilty under the weight of sin and all of us in the same boat of needing his grace and forgiveness through Jesus. I'm telling you, if you've never heard the gospel, that's it. And though some Christians talk like maybe that's not true, that we're all equally a mess, look at what James would go on to say as he would write his epistle he says, and again, this is the logic, gang, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become, say it with me, guilty of all. How could he think like that? Well, he goes on. For God, who said do not commit adultery, also said don't commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Pause right there. So that means anything that you do, so some of you are saying, well, I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer. No, you just overeat really well. So let's put that one on the table. Or, or you're chronically impatient with those around you. Ask your wife, let's put that one on the table. Or as we did the fruits of the Spirit, you have like no self-control at certain areas of your life. Let's put that one on the table. Do you see where I'm going with this? And before you know it, all God is saying is, is that if you mess up at one point in the law, you need my grace, you need my forgiveness. And you're a transgressor of all of it. Look at how this passage ends. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. Because judgment's going to be merciless to one who has no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What's it saying there? Just simply saying, be thankful that at the end of the day, God's offered you Jesus. Because in the midst of your mess, God's going to opt for mercy more than he is judgment. Because mercy triumphs over judgment in his economy. But the point is, is that if you go around judging others based on your own societal religious, religious classifications, 
to the degree that you and others fail, Jesus says, here's what you're doing. You're looking at the log and, or the speck in other people's eye and you're failing to see the log in your own eye. You're judging and you're classifying and you're ranking sins. And then you're, you're making all these judgments to everybody around you. And you don't realize that while you're doing that, you got your own issues as well. And as he says in the Old Testament, your issues, your sin is a stench in my nostrils. But you don't see it because you're too busy judging everybody else. And it's right at this point in the discussion, gang, that it gets a little bit tricky. Because as much as we admit that God sees all of humanity as a mess, and as much as we admit that there's a danger in categorizing, ranking, and judging sin... At the same time, now watch this, God does not say, however, that some sins do not carry more weighty consequences than others. And God does not say that some sins are not more hurtful than others. And God does not say that some sins are not more destructive to society, family, personal relationships, even the church, than others. Do you all understand what I'm saying there? I mean, there's a reason we categorize and rank them, because when you read the Bible... It's obvious that God thinks that murder is probably more destructive to society than a little bit of gossip about your neighbor. God knows that adultery is going to tear apart a family a lot more than a father's impatience. So, so we're right on that level. But here's what we need to wrestle with, and this is where a mature follower comes in. Now try to follow this. And that is that we need to be so careful with this kind of thinking when we start to rank the consequences of sin. Because if we're not careful, what can happen is that we go around then categorizing and ranking everybody's sin, and before you know it, because it's so easy to do, we see our sin as a lot less than their sin. And we become very arrogant, we become holier than thou, because they don't struggle with what we do. And even though we have our own struggles, we're just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees basically saying, but hey, I'm more righteous than you, so obviously we need to talk about you rather than me. And there's a lot of Christians, gang, that function like that today, am I right? There's a lot of Christians. And I think that's what really hurts our cause is when we're running around judging everybody in this world because we fail to forget that, one, judgment begins with the Son. He is the one to judge, not us. And that, two, even though we're called upon to make value judgments, and we are, I mean, ISIS is wrong. Can we all agree on that? ISIS is wrong. How can you make that discernment? Well, you make it because you make a value judgment. So we all make value judgments. That's not what we're saying here. It's just that if all of a sudden in that value judgment you go so far that you begin categorizing, ranking, and judging everyone around you, which Christians do so well, man, before you know it, you have the smell of a scribe. You have the smell of a Pharisee on you, and you've missed the whole message of Jesus. Let me share with you how real this is. I was uh, flying this week. It was actually... I don't know why these things happen to me. I guess they're normal, but they just seem funny when they happen to me. I'm flying a, on a plane back from Cleveland on Thursday, and it was Southwest Airlines where you don't pick your well, you pick your seat, but you aren't you know given your seat. And so I got a nice window seat, you know, because I got on the plane kind of early, and and it was a packed flight. They're all packed nowadays, and and I'm sitting next to this um, uh, very very attractive woman 
who's about my age. And that's just rare. Let's just be honest about it, right? And so, you know, Kim and I, Kim, no, it is. I mean, Kim and I both said that, you know, as they were getting older and fatter and dumpier, and, you know, we, we, we own that. And so, but man, this gal, she was really attractive. And, 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 and then next to her on the aisle was this 65-year-old, thinking he's 25-year-old kind of guy, you know the kind, and not that I'm making value judgments, but you know the kind, and, and so, <laughs> I'm sizing these two people up. And at one point, the guy asks this very attractive 50-year-old, uh, what do you do? And I kid you not, she says, I'm an exotic dancer. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. I get it. it all fell into place. I mean, you know, she, she's obviously, uh, and, and, and again, I know what an exotic dancer is. I mean, I, I did, not that I go to those places, but I read enough papers and things like that. And and, and, and then if I didn't know what it was, he went on to ask her a bunch of questions about it. That was creepy, and, and it really was. It was awkward. And, and he's asking her all these questions about it, and I'm hearing her whole life story, you know, and, and, how, and how she doesn't, you know, she's in this world, and it's very, she didn't call it CD, I would, and all these things, and how she has, you know, two daughters, and, and, and one has had a baby out of wedlock, and, and, but she's so proud of her, and, and how she now is divorced, and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what a mess. And, and her whole life story is coming out, and... Um, and, and honestly, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, I, I just hope she doesn't lean over to me and ask me what I do. <laughs> right? I mean, talk about awkward. I mean, because she just laid out every sin in her life, you know, and she doesn't even see it as sin, but she knows that culture probably doesn't smile on these things, you know, and, and, and so, I mean, it was just, and she didn't, thankfully, because I, but I was praying for, here, here's my point in telling you this. I mean, picture me there. I kid you not. I have my, my Bible open to John chapter 8. And I'm studying for my sermon on the woman caught in adultery. And I'm sitting next to this gal. And I'm listening to her story. And I can tell you in my heart of hearts, and it was really a moment in time with me and the Lord, because I, I, I felt God press this on my spirit. It, I can tell you in my heart of hearts, I did not see myself as better than this woman. I didn't. I mean, some of you are going, well, come on, Jamie. I mean, you're a pastor, and, and, and you don't struggle with those things. Nope, you're right, I don't. And if I did, I, I couldn't be your pastor. But, but, but here's what I do know, is that um, I got my own issues. How about you? I've been a Christian 35 years, and you know, somebody once gave me this great image. He said that, 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 that part of getting older as a Christian is that the closer you get to the flame of God, the more light shines uh, on the decadence of your own heart. And boy, have I experienced that. I, I'm more broken over my sin at 52 than I was the day I came to Christ. I am more aware of my own propensities and, and the things that I do. And, and most of them aren't sins that you guys see. They're sins of relationship. Uh, they're, they're sins of attitude. Sins that, quite frankly, make it so that I can be a great pastor, but nothing disqualifies me. But I know them, and God knows them, and they bother me. And I'm so aware of them, and I confess them all the time. And, and, and the tragedy is some of them, some of you can relate, some of them I've been confessing for 35 years. I've been begging God to make me different. And, and thank God they're the kinds of things that my wife forgives and my kids forgive and my good friends forgive. In fact, sometimes they say, as you guys say, ah, oh, that's just Jamie. But I said, they go, yeah, that's just sinful, pathetic, messed up Jamie. That's what you're saying. But you see, I'm very aware of those things. And as a result of that, I have no right to look at a gal like this who doesn't even know Jesus, at least she didn't say that, and somehow judge her. Do you see how this stuff works? And again, I kind of wished I did have a 
conversation with her. It just, I, I couldn't find any natural way to do it. And, and, and this guy next to her was so interested in her, I couldn't get a word in edgewise anyways. And, and so it was just creepy. And, you know, and so I just did my thing. But, but, but it was a moment in time for me to realize I have a choice, you do too, every day for how I'm going to view people around me. And there's a propensity for me to categorize and rank and judge them to hell. And that's what the Pharisees did. Should we stone her or not? And the reality is you and I do that in our thinking today, and it never helps people come to Jesus. Do we all understand that? It never does. There was a story in the paper this week, and it was just kind of sad. Maybe you picked up on it. It hit the national news about a, um, two church ladies in North Carolina who were, uh, this is so sad, they were in a restaurant, and their waitress was obviously a lesbian. And they eventually showed a picture of her. And I said, yep, I probably would have called her a lesbian too. You shouldn't judge a book by the cover, but was. And this was a very activist lesbian, a young gal who, who is very vocal about her sexual identity. And, and these two church ladies knew it. And um, one of the church ladies, they got separate bills, um, gave her uh, no tip. And in the tip line wrote down uh, Leviticus, I think it's 20 verse 10 or 18 verse 10. It's, it's the passage in the Old Testament that says, uh, homosexuality is an abomination to God. And, and then put down, with giving no tips, said in, in the little memo line even below that, said, I'm praying for you. Now, now, honestly, is there anything wrong with giving someone a Bible verse and saying you're praying with them? No, not at all. But when it comes across in, in such a way that you give them a verse that condemns them from the Old Testament law, which is what the Pharisees did, and then you don't even help them at all by maybe giving them a tip. I mean, as you can imagine, it didn't get received very well by this young gal. It just inflamed her even more. And I read that and I thought to myself, when will we get it? When will we understand? That's probably not the way. So you're saying, what is the way? You know, it's fascinating. It's the second thing that we learn here from Jesus. It's the first thing we learn is that humanity loves to categorize rank or rank you categorize rank and judge sin here's what jesus loves to do jesus loves to forgive and set us free from sin i, I said this earlier to you but you really got to feel the irony of this story john goes to great lengths if john wrote this to help us see the irony going on here that, that you have the people who had no right to judge doing the judging and then the one guy in all of the universe, in all of eternity, that is going to judge humanity, including you and I, he shows up on the scene, and the one thing that he does not do is condemn this woman. That's the main point of this whole story. And it reveals to us that Jesus loves to come into our lives. He loves to come into your life and mine, as he has with me. And he loves to forgive sin. Especially, and I think this is why this is important, we look him at the face, in the face and say, Lord. And as we look at him and say, I, I, I'm a mess, forgive me. And when we, when we come to him in humility on bended knee, the Bible says God will never despise that. That kind of brokenness and desire to do life on his terms. He's got you right where he wants you. And it's in that, that area that he then all of a sudden brings forgiveness and grace. And Jesus loves to do that, gang. I mean, think of all the stories you know from the New Testament. I mean, they all have one common theme. Matthew at the tax collector's booth. The Samaritan woman who had more divorces than Elizabeth Taylor. The, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. Peter when he denied Jesus. Zacchaeus up a tree. Jairus' daughter. The rich young ruler. They all got one thing in common. 
They all have different outcomes, but they have one thing in common, and that is that Jesus met them, helped them see their need for God by revealing to them their sin that separates them from God, and then offered them forgiveness through faith in him. That's the gospel, gang. That's what Jesus dispensed walking around Palestine 2,000 years ago for three years. That's why he went to a wooden cross to be our substitute and our atonement to free us from our sin and to live a life of obedience and righteousness to God, but always remembering where we came from. Because if you forget where you came from, you're just going to judge everybody else around you. And the point of all of this is this is that you and I as followers of Jesus must begin to see all of life this way. It's funny, I had a guy come up to me after the last service for my last church. He was chairman of the board for four years there, and I, his name's Tim, and I said, so what'd you think, buddy? He goes, man, he goes, you strung a, you strum a one-string banjo. Do you know that? And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, everything for you is grace. And I looked at him and said, thank you. Because it really is. It all begins and ends with grace. If, if you don't see life through the lens of grace, if you don't see life through the lens of what Jesus is doing here, believe me, you have a lot of other options. Here's my point. I, I don't mean to judge you here. I'm not your judge. But the point is, you will not be firing on all eight or ten cylinders as a follower of Jesus. Because you're missing the core key component to what makes a follower a follower. And that is that you see all of life the lens of grace and when others around you are hurting or when others are in need or when you're sitting next to an exotic dancer on an airplane or as i've had lots of people come up to me after the services uh, this weekend you know they i I got this person this person that person in my life i mean believe me nothing shocks me it's all a mess how are you going to view that mess how are you going to view those around you no one's asking you to be light on sin if you hear that today you've heard wrong what we're asking you to do is see sin as god does and start to bathe it, start to posture it in light of his grace and help others do so as well. I want to close in kind of a unique way today. I don't know if this will work or not. I've done it in the last two services. I don't know if it worked or not, but it's meaningful to me and maybe it will be meaningful to you. Before we go to our elder fund offering, I want to do this. I, um, as many of you know, I became a Christian 35 years ago this year. And what some of you don't know, and this is kind of funny, is that when I first became a Christian, I got saved out of the rock world. I got, I mean, I was listening to Kiss and the Stones and ACDC and Black Sabbath, and I mean, I went to all the concerts and lived a pretty decadent life the first 18 years of my life. And when I got saved, I, I started listening to some of the words of the songs that I was listening to, and I would just be embarrassed. I was like, oh my gosh, these are terrible words. And, uh, and, and I didn't want to listen to a lot of that garbage anymore. Uh, but Amy Grant had not been invented yet, and boy, does that date me. I mean, she was still a freshman in Vassar College. Michael W. Smith had, hadn't come along yet. And so the whole contemporary Christian music world was, was vastly in its infancy. And so I'd go to church, and I'd be singing this enlightenment-based music that was 300 years old, done to an organ. And I'd think, my gosh, I walked into a time warp. Like, I expect Martin Luther to walk through the door any minute. And, and, and so that wasn't really doing it for me. I know some of you don't like how I speak like that, but it wasn't. It was my journey. And so there was a group of young rockers back then who all got saved through, out of the hippie movement. Uh, they were all part of the Jesus movement. And, and there are names that many of you don't know. Larry, Larry Norman was the founder of this whole thing. He wrote, a, he wrote a song called Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? And that kind of spawned the whole, you know, rock music, Christian rock thing. 
And then Randy Stonehill and Keith Green and Steve Camp and Phil Kagey, these are all names that, that I started to discover that, that, again, in my world, nobody knew of, but they were doing early Christian rock. And here's my point, is that it became very, very meaningful to me. Just picture a young, messed up Christian, 18 years old, driving down a rural road in Ohio and, and, and trying so hard to walk with Jesus. And I'd buy these albums. You guys remember albums? They're these large vinyl things. And I'd buy these albums, and I'd, and I'd tape them onto a cassette tape. Remember cassette tapes? And I'd, I'd put them in my cassette player in my 69 Caprice, and I would just drive down the road just listening to these Christian songs. And I've always been an advocate of what you put into your head is going to influence you, amen? I mean, garbage in, garbage out, and likewise. And, and so I'm putting all this amazing stuff into my head, and it really formed a lot of my young Christian worldview. One of the guys I listened to back then was a guy by the name of Chuck Gerard. He got saved through Calvary Chapel here on the West Coast and became just a young Christian rock star. He's now like almost 70. I mean, that's how old this stuff is. And he's still touring, uh, but your voice changes, so it's not as good. But he's, uh, he, he's still around. And, and he did some albums that really influenced me. One of the songs he did is called Don't Shoot the Wounded. I'm going to play that song for you right now. I tried to get Troy to sing it, but he won't sing songs that I like. I tried to get him to sing Michael Card. He won't sing Michael Card, and then I give him other things. So obviously Troy and I don't agree on what good music is, and, and he probably wins. But this song is more like a Bob Dylan song. It's actually more of a rap song, but it's done before rap by a white guy, so I'll let you figure it out. But it's an amazing song. The words are rich, and I want to share it with you. And whether you like the song or not, listen to the words of this, because here's my point. These words influenced your young pastor 35 years ago in a way that has brought me here today. And I think it has a message for you and I today. Listen to this, and I'll come back and close us in prayer, and we'll go to our elder fund offering. Don't shoot the wounded. They need us more than ever. They need our love, no matter what it is they've done. Sometimes we just condemn them and don't take time to hear their story. Don't shoot the wounded. Someday you might be one. It's easy to love the people who are standing hard and fast, pressing on to meet that higher calling. But the ones who might be struggling, we tend to judge too harshly and refuse to try and catch them when they're falling. We put people into boxes and we draw our hard conclusions and when they do the things we know they should not do. We sometimes write them off as hopeless and we throw them to the dogs. Our compassion and forgiveness sometimes seem in short supply. So I say, don't shoot the wounded. They need us more than ever. They need our love no matter what it is they've done. Sometimes we just condemn them and don't take time to hear their story. Don't shoot the wounded. Someday you might be one. We can love them and forgive them when their sin does not exceed our own. For we too have been down bumpy roads before. But when they commit offenses outside the boundaries we have set, we judge them in a word and we turn them out and we close the door. Myself, I've been forgiven for so many awful things. I've been cleansed and washed and bathed so many times that when I see a brother who has fallen from the way, I just can't find the license to convict him of his crime. So I say, don't shoot the wound. They need 
us more than ever. They need our love, no matter what it is they've done. Sometimes we just condemn them and don't take time to hear their story. Don't shoot the wounded. Someday you might be one. That doesn't mean we turn our heads when we see a brother sin and pretend that what he's doing is all right. But we must help him see his error and we must lead him to repent. Cry with those who cry to bring their deeds into the light. For it's the sick that need the doctor and it's the lame that need the crutch. It's the prodigal who needs the loving hand. For a man who's in despair, there should be kindness from his friends, lest he should forsake the fear of Almighty God and turn away from God and man. So I say, don't shoot the wound. They need us more than ever. They need our love, no matter what it is they've done. Sometimes we just condemn them and don't take time to hear their story. Don't shoot the wound. Someday you might be one. Well, the other two congregations clapped. I don't know what your problem is, but. <laughs> no, I get it. I, I had my niece here last night from Grand Canyon University, and I said to her, so Margo, what'd you think of that song? She says, I liked it. I'm not downloading it, but I liked it. And so I thought, okay, that says it all right there. Just let the words of that challenge you. I, I think that there's a lot of thought into the words of a song like that. And uh, I think we need more songs like that today. More importantly, I think we need more Christians who emphasize and model like Jesus did uh, in his approach to this woman and uh, help people be released from their sin. If you're a follower of his, he's released you from your sin. Even though you might be beat up today, I don't know, he's released you. And he's given us a ministry of reconciliation now to release others and help them find the Jesus that has so loved us. So that's what we do as followers. As we go to our elder fund offering here in our campuses and our venues, Troy's going to lead us here in our elder fund offering. Why don't you bow with me and pray? God, thank you for the fact that your son, whom you so graciously sent to us, is, is a son who reveals sin and doesn't let us off the hook, but then as a Savior and a Lord who very quickly draws us in and reminds us of the forgiveness and the grace and the truth and then eventually the righteousness and the obedience that we can have in him. And God, I pray that as those of us who have become believers in and now followers of you, God, I pray that that message of grace would never, ever, ever be far from our lips and certainly would never be far from our minds. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. <laughs>